0: So at the end of last week, we had been talking about uh, uh, realizing in life uh, there's something that needs to be done or could be done consciously. We had talked about, uh, I, I think at one point I talked about the word practice and uh, people talking about how long I've been practicing, two months, six months, three years, usually meaning how long since I met these these formal practices of uh, uh Oh, I'm not going to say anymore, training the mind. Someone told me training was a bad word. <laughs> habituating the mind, these mind practices of habituating the mind. It is nicer than training. Training sounds a little bit harsh. Habituating the mind the compassion and kindness on behalf of its own contentment, on behalf of its own happiness. And at some point we discover, aha, there is actually, people have other people have articulated that this can be done, and this how to, and this is how to do it, and it's good to do it in community. And so we become conscious practitioners. And then just at the end of that uh, class, someone asked, or I asked, how do we know we are making progress? What are the parameters of the progress? And earlier this morning, before we did our uh, silent contemplative practice, I said, you know, act, in, I feel about this path that it is the habituation of the mind to wisdom and compassion and kindness. But it's not a path in the sense of going from here to there. It's a path of going, it's more uh, uh, to think about it as going from here to here and really waking up. Someone told me it's not a path that goes this way. It's a spiral that just stays here and spirals around and around and around and goes deeper. I don't know actually about deeper either. I'd like to say it wakes up. Maybe it goes higher. (laughs) So all of the words are inadequate, but somehow that the mind becomes habituated to gracefully living this life. And I talked about, uh, uh, I had used a specific uh, language of why don't we just do it naturally since the meditation instruction is let the mind assume its natural peace and ease. Why don't we... Manifest that natural peace and ease and wisdom and compassion all the time. We talked about, well, things happen that cloud the mind, or things happen and the mind clouds itself, In mal- is, a, is a more appropriate way to say it, in a maladaptive attempt to feel better. So this is uh, uh, what I thought about in terms of, so how do we uncloud the mind? How do we know we're making progress um, would an uh, enlightened person look different if you saw them walking down the street? So it's got several sub-questions. Uh, first of all, I think I don't know that they would. I, I don't think people look different if they're wise. I think they behave differently. So the question is not so much. Uh, uh, you remember the you remember the movie Marty years and years ago? What's it all about, Marty? Ernest Borgnine, who just, huh? Alfie, what's it all about,
1: Alfie?
0: <laughs> you are Marty. What's it all about, Alfie? Uh, Ernest Borgnine, standing under the subway lines in the Bronx. Ernest Borgnine recently died. Uh, but it's really not what's it all about, what, what, you know, what's the meaning of life, but what should I do? What, what are the things to do? It's very important for me to recognize, there's a book called The Heart of Buddhist Meditation. It's a lovely book by maybe my favorite articulator of Buddhist thought, who uh, who uh, had the the monk name of uh, Nyanapanaka. Nyanapanaka was born in Germany and went to university there. Was a German Jew actually, and went to Sri Lanka to study Buddhism. Died in about 10 years ago, I think now, somewhere in the last decade. Uh, as a very, very old man, as head of the Buddhist Publication Society in Sri Lanka, uh, really recognized as a very, very uh, high member of the tradition, and articulator of the tradition. And um, if you want to read Nyanapanaka, you can read The Heart of Buddhist Meditation and another book called The Vision of Dhamma, which is a, a series of essays, which is wonderful. But in the heart of Buddhist meditation, the first part of the book, chapter one, long chapter, is about uh, the um, the, um, the teaching on mindfulness. That's um, the Buddha's uh, teaching on the foundations of mindfulness, how to cultivate mindfulness. The second chapter is called "Clear Comprehension of Purpose," and it seems to be so important to link the two of them together that we are not just being mindful for being mindful and not just being mindful in order to uh, 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 liberate our own minds from the habits that are painful to it, but then having, in that very mindfulness, having built into it the energy to do something with that clarity. What will I do? Clear comprehension of purpose. And my own sense and my visualization of it like in every moment of mindfulness, there's a mini Sabbath. There's a hesitation. What's happening here, out here? What's happening in me in response? Can my mind meet this uh, meet this openly and awakely, uh, fully, without manipulating it? Uh, Neonaponica says uh, the, uh, the quality of mindfulness is it's not coercive that here's this moment and this is what it is. What should I do now? So it's responsive, it's just not coercive. It doesn't require of the moment that it be different. It responds to the moment out of what clearly needs to be done. I think when I was thinking about this and putting it together, I thought um, thought about uh, that moment of clarity that allows something creative to happen being a moment of uh, of real liberation. And the line that came to me was the Leonard Cohen song, uh, Even though it all goes wrong, I'll stand before the Lord of song with nothing on my tongue but hallelujah. You know, that somehow to, in the middle of this whole life, so filled with challenge. When we do our prayers every week and you listen to what's happening to people, I'm always surprised. I, I know that you know, there in this challenge, that challenge, this challenge. There's always something I hadn't thought of. Look at that could happen. And that could happen. And chromosomal difficulties, anomalies. Who thought about that? And said, this and this and this, this could happen, something else could happen. Everything could happen and it is happening and it's and it's because of a lot of pain in people's lives and that it's happening that this whole thing is happening is amazing and to be able to hold those two things that com- difficulties are happening and compassion and response is also happening somebody who's retiring from a life of ministering to the sick and how hard it is to stop doing that because the, not only because one's identity is, well, that's what I am, but because it's so pleasurable to make other people feel better. That human beings, I think, are wired for compassion. We feel better when we manifest ourselves that way. What can I do, was the question. So I thought about um, three things I wanted to tell you that happened this week. You know, I was teaching on Sunday morning, uh, the, the, what's happening up at the upper campus this week is the last meeting of a, a two-year, two-and-a-half-year training program for people in the Community Dharma Leaders Program. About 100 people from all over the United States have taken this two-year training program, and they, they've had five retreats, I guess, where they come together and study and sit and have inter- changes and talk for a week, and then in between they're in, in contact with each other and with their teachers and with their mentors, because wherever they are uh, in cities all over the United States and probably way further, yes, indeed, way further than the United States, they are people who are becoming in their communities articulators of the Dharma. So people live in remote places and they say, you know, there's nobody in my town that I can go and practice with, sit with, talk about dharma with. So, well, but I could become a dharma leader and start sitting and other people would come sit. So they're a very wonderful, diverse group from all over the place. And they asked some very um, nuts and bolts questions. I, I was there to talk some about my views about teaching. And then they asked questions. And someone said, um, uh Larry Yang, who uh, was moderating that morning, said, You know, you've been teaching the same Wednesday morning for 20 years. And a lot of people here in small communities, they're the only teacher. They teach every week, once a week. So the, one of the questions is how do you figure out what to say every week? You know, it's the same Dharma. Once you go through the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the Five Hindrances, seven factors of enlightenment, what do you say every week? Should I turn back? <laughs> I said, well, you know, it's actually not a big problem. First of all, clergy all over the world on whatever is their Sabbath day have to come every week with some brand new thing to say and some brand new interpretation of Scripture that they've done already however many times. So I said, you know, it's not that hard. You just think about what happened to you that week, what happened to me. I said, the people that I mentor and being teachers, I say, always come prepared to start by saying Yesterday it happened to me that, or this morning, or the day before yesterday. Not only will it of necessity be a new thing, but also because the whole my whole sense of dharma is it's how to live a life, and unless we articulate it through the nuts and bolts of our own lives, when we cry, when we're moved to tears, who we care about. It's just an idea, so I said. Always I things always happen. They say things always seem to happen to you. I said, no, no, no. <laughs> things happen. Things happen to everybody. Um, because the truth is available in anything. So I went to the ballpark the other night. So that's I have three, three, three stories. I went to the ballpark. So who else went to the ballpark? There you go. It was great. So it was great, wasn't it? Did you have fun? We had our own area, by the way. We had our own area, roped off our own section, our own banner. Uh, it was great. Everybody's passing around. Uh, uh, French fries and pretzels. Sweet potato fries. Sweet potato <laughs> fries they went around. Yeah, that was great. Bags of pretzels. Uh, everybody huddled. You know, we all looked beautiful when we arrived and then huddled all up with blankets <laughs> because it got cold at the end. But uh there it, it was a particular moment. this is the moment that was so fun for me. So I'm sitting all uh, surrounded by Dharma people, and uh, the opera was Rigoletto. So Rigoletto uh, is the court gesture in a certain court uh, in uh, uh, a former era in a former century, and uh, i'm I'm not absolutely sure of this. But since the French word uh, 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 to joke around is rigolet, I'm sure "rigoletto" is a little joke. So, and uh, it's a, it's a, it's, and actually, the character of "rigoletto" is the court jester, and it's, it's totally, um, it's ironic because this is a major tragedy. The whole thing. It's not funny. The um, singing is glorious. And the plot is completely tragic and early on in the plot when something terrible happens to Rigoletto he sings out in a great voice the single line, revenge is my only goal. And so around me somebody says, this is not going to end good. Somebody else says, this is very undharmic. Yeah, you have to go with dharma people to know that when someone says, revenge is my only goal, that it's not going to end good. <laughs> that, that's a fundamental dharma, that, we, that the meaning of karma is we plant the seeds for our own future all the time. It's really, uh, the, the Dalai Lama said at one point, the most important thing for people to understand, or maybe it was the Buddha who said, most important thing for people to understand is karma. And the meaning of karma, as far as the Buddha taught it, it has different meanings and it's, it's been, I think, um, wrongly interpreted as uh, an eye for an eye and you get it back if you did this. I think it's completely a, a presentation of every act every thought is seeding the future. You build your own future, you create your own future by your own actions and your own thoughts. And it's a great tragedy. Um, and it, uh, it's, it's actually the main themes in it are greed, hatred, and delusion, the things that we think of as being the major, uh, the major impulses of the untrained, unwise mind. Uh, the greed is is tremendous on every level. Uh, the uh, uh, the young and pure daughter of Rigoletto that no one knows he has is closeted away and looked over by a nursemaid to keep her safe from people who would take advantage of her. Uh, accepts a bribe from somebody who would like access to her private room and takes this. Bribes. You see, problem number one is greed. This girl is compromised because of the nursemaid. The duke, who's the really the bad guy, who sings La Mobile, which everybody knows, waiting for that at the end. Sounds like such a cheerful song. It's actually when you hear him sing it, he's a complete rake with no concern whatsoever for the well-being of the people whose lives he destroys. Uh, so he's a complete rake with no concern for the people whose lives he destroys. That's it. His courtiers kidnap this beautiful young woman and bring him, her to him for him to take advantage of, which he promptly does. So you have greed, you have lust, you have uh, violence, uh, and then revenge. Uh, revenge is my only goal. And you get it that he might really feel that way it was really he was tremendously wronged but still it's not going to end well It already the seeds of that and I, I think of, I'm thinking the whole time well how will I say what is the Dharma of Rigoletto the Dharma of Rigoletto is that the unconscious mind is easily overtaken by greed and hatred and delusion And suffers terribly. It creates suffering suffers terribly. It was fun, though, to go with people. (laughs) So this isn't going to end good. You can see. Uh, So there's a whole... This is a story, too, and I'll see if it goes together. Because I want to say sometimes we make... um, we do things that uh, aren't for the common good, or we continue... Well, I'll tell you the story, because I want to say that uh, there's a way in which I, I think of times in history that people have been misused and wronged, because people didn't know better. How did this come up for me? As, when I was in the same morning, Gina Sharp is one of the teachers in the CDL, and uh, Uh, I know Gina some. She's mostly in New York and I think 10 or 15 years younger than I. And she introduced me to, she's one of the teachers, she introduced me to another woman in the program because Gina and I are alumni of the same women's college in New York. And she said, here is so-and-so. She went to our same school. And we talked about... um, what years we had graduated. So I was class of 56, and Gina is class of 72, and this other woman was class of 76 or something. So we talked about, I said, uh, so you were there uh, when the first issue of Ms. Magazine was published in the summer of 1972. And she said, yeah, it was so exciting. That I said, you know, in the summer of 55, when I got married, the end of my junior year in high school, I was 19 years old. I said, so I have to, I'm, I'm confessing to, I'm embarrassed about when I had, a, I had a kind of a Cinderella wedding, which people did in those days in that in the community that I lived. And you got <laughs> printed cards to write thank yous on. Those cards, little cards, they were folded over, and they went in little envelopes, and they had, on the outside it said, Mrs. Seymour Boerstein. That's hugely embarrassing. You know, uh, that's not my name. That was my social legal status at that point, but it's not my name. You know, no self-respecting woman after Gloria Steinem <laughs> told them about that would write their name as their legal status. Uh, but I was pleased to have those. I thought it was really cool. All of my friends had them, I had them. I probably have one in an album somewhere. So we talked about, I I talked about over the years as I realized I, was, I didn't make up that tradition. I didn't come from a family that particularly had uh, sexist, uh, values. I was an only child. My father thought I was wonderful in a, in a culture that was traditionally preferred boys. My father was tremendously pleased with me. He took a second job when I went to college to teaching at night to be able to support my tuition. Uh, so I, I, I think it took me a little bit longer to wake up to the, the as a class, problems of women, situations of women. And then you wake up, and you're up, and then, and then you you pay attention to it, and then you watch. Uh, Fifty years later, I uh, I was particularly pleased on uh, Rosh Hashanah. I was at the congregation Rode of Shalom, where I am a member, and uh, part of the there's lots of extemporaneous parts of the liturgy, but parts of them. Our, the community is, reads or the clergy reads parts of the prayer book. And I'm looking at the words and I see what they say and I'm hearing them. And every time there's a word that might have a masculine gender, uh, uh, oh Lord, we thank you for the many gifts of being alive. They say, oh source of life, oh beginning of creation, that God has become not a person and not a man and they just read over it rather than buy 5,000 new prayer books every year or something when they make it better and better translations, they just read over it someone said to me of those women the other day I think Gina and her friend whose name I'm sorry to say I forgot at this moment, they said so did you really enjoy Mad Men? said, no, I really couldn't stand it. I couldn't look. Could, did you enjoy it? Thought lots of people thought it was a wonderful, true-to-life depiction of the 50s. It was a true-to-life depiction of the 50s, but it was so hard to watch. Painful, the degree of ignorance in men and in women and in everyone because the basic tone of it was never mind that this is killing people, selling them cigarettes, we'll do it anyway. You know, the whole, so we talked about once you wake up and you say, look what people are doing, you can't do it anymore, but you have to wake up. And so one of the reasons I want to tell you that whole story is in my own mind, I thought, oh, it's so embarrassing to have done that. And then when I reflected about it, I thought, no, it wasn't embarrassing. That's what people did, and I really wasn't ready yet to see it in, in its fullest context someone points out to you What were they, called? they were called consciousness raising groups people, ra- people raise your consciousness you say ah now I woke up now I'm not going to do that anymore that doesn't work but it, the extra uh, recrimination isn't so necessary so I want to tell you one thing that came out of that conversation on the whole morning as we talked because maybe we'll do it today if we have time We talked about waking up in general. You wake up to, wait a minute, there is this business of sexism and gender problems, not just with me or that culture, but in the world and historically, then you change. So we talked about waking up and I said, uh, I have a friend who says I was born, about himself, he says, I was born when I was about four years old. And it's it's an interesting thought, do you get that? He meant at, at age four, he suddenly realized that he, John, or whatever I named him for this morning, was, an, was a, a, a separate individual and that everybody's life would end at a certain time. But he, John, had now a body that was four years He was a different person from everybody else, distinct from everybody else. And then, we then talked about other waking ups, like at some time, probably not at four for most people, but maybe at eight or 14 or 17 or 22 or something, we realize there's a problem inherent in having been born, which means that we have to die at the end. And so does everybody else that we know. So this is suddenly very problematic. There's no way out but forward. And forward is, there's no way to do that without loss. So I'm also thinking about what the Buddha taught fundamentally about suffering, which is life is what it is, 10,000 joys and 10,000 woes. And suffering is what we add to the woes or the joys by insisting that they last longer or insisting that they not happen. That's what it is. It's joys and woes that we can celebrate and arouse compassion about wake up a second time for that sort of existential dilemma of, "Uh uh-oh, what now? Then, at some point later, people said, there's another waking up where maybe you hear about spiritual teachings, maybe you hear about the Dharma, maybe you hear about teachings from a religious teacher that you've had in another tradition that says, you know, that's true, that existential dilemma that you have, but it's also true that your mind can be reborn into a mind of awakened compassion and kindness, which really is the, uh, not the antidote, maybe the antidote, it's the answer to the dilemma. It's an answer to the what many poets and philosophers have called the fear and trembling of existential awareness frailty of existential awareness you never know i'm going to talk a little bit more about it because i thought at some point it would be fun for us to be in little groups of two or three people and talk to each other about when were you born? when were you born and when were you born? and why do you try when are you yet born into that place so you, you have it as I have it as a hope on the horizon? I see glimpses of that terrain, but I don't live there all the time. I'd like to live there all the time so that's what I'm working on well, Most of the time I'd even do I really want to settle for that? No, I think till the end of the life you keep on working on it. I was born, I was born, I was born, maybe really born. Uh, I have a friend who uh, said that his daughter asked him, when she was about four years old, one morning, having just gotten up and came into her parents' bed, she said, you know when you get up in the morning? She said, can you get more up than up? <laughs> and it's a very, it's a, it's, a, it's a, really wonderful, that's what we're trying to do, actually. We're trying to get more up than up. Um, So I had a number of things in, uh, that I wanted to share with you from, from this week. Uh, some of them very serious old poetry. Some of it, um, do you know Rick Hansen? Rick Hansen? Rick Hansen teaches in this county and all over the place. He's written a number of very good books. So uh, I, uh, I get uh, his, uh, I don't know, maybe weekly or daily, or re- often reminders co- oh, for, of a thing called Just One Thing. It was the name of his book, recent book. It's a free newsletter that su- suggests a simple practice each week for more joy, more fulfilling relationships, more peace of mind. So uh, I guess it's every week that I get uh, another reminder from Rick. So this, is a, um, this came this week. I'm going to put this whole part of what I'm talking about into the framework of when you wake up more up than up, what do you see? You see that things are impermanent. You see that if you struggle with it, you suffer. But if you say this is how it is, you don't. And you see the truth of uh, karma in the sense that things are caused by other things. And it's usually quite impersonal. You know? If we have an earthquake now or uh, if uh, any of us, may it not happen, gets into a car accident, may have nothing at all to do with us other than the fact that we were on the highway at that time. Or the the fault that's under this part of California decides to shake itself right now. You don't know. So this is Rick's um, contribution. From says the truth of anything is like a mosaic with many tiles. One part of the truth of things is that they're robust, robust and enduring. Whether it's El Capitan in Yosemite or the love of a child for her mother. And father, good for Rick, you know. Fifteen years ago, we would have said his mother or father, and now we consciously say her whenever we get a gender choice. I think I think it's just being done more and more consistently because there's a lot of a lot of making up to do. <laughs> Sounds like Lucille Ball got a lot of explaining to do. This is going to do. This is going to undo that, you know. But. Uh, It was actually Desi Arnaz. he got a lot of explaining to do. Another part of the truth is that things bruise, tear, erode, disperse. Fundamentally, they're fragile. Speaking of El Capitan, I knew someone climbing it who had just placed anchors above a long horizontal crack when the sheet of granite he was standing on broke off to fall like a thousand-ton pancake to the valley floor below, and he lived, clutching his anchors. I know a man who was uh, in Yosemite getting ready to climb the next day and set out his sleeping bag in the field to sleep. And a service vehicle driving through the field drove over him, and he has been, his spinal cord was severed, and he's been in a wheelchair all this time. You don't know. He didn't know. The truck riding through, it wasn't a road, was riding through the field. You don't know. Love and other feelings often change in a family. Bodies get ill and die. Milk spills, glasses break. People mistreat you. Good feelings fade. One sense of calm or worth is easily disturbed. Wars start and then end badly. Planets heat up and hurricanes flood cities. Earthquakes cause tidal waves and damage nuclear reactors. Life is like a house of cards in a single gust. A layoff at work, an injury, a misjudgment, a bit of bad luck can knock it over. Taking a longer view, several billion years from now, our sun will swell into a giant red star that consumes Mercury, Venus, and Earth, the Grand Canyon, Pacific Ocean, and all the works of humankind will come to an end, utterly fragile, several billion years from now. <laughs> yeah. But still, you think, wow. So that was Rick this week. Bring to, this is Linda, Linda Graham. Bring to mind a moment that was relatively easy for you to feel for someone's heartache or sorrow. Your neighbor struggles to carry heavy bags of groceries up the driveway with a recently broken ankle. Your cousin lost his luggage two airports back before he arrived at your house for a weekend visit. Your eight-year-old was late for an after-school meet-up. The school bus took off for the class picnic without him. He came home and collapsed in tears. Your cat sprained his hip jumping down from too high a kitchen counter. And is limping around the house for three days. All those things happen. Susan sent me a, p- a poem. It goes right there, this poem. <laughs> I'll, I'll read some of it. Bad things are going to happen. You're amazed. T- this is called Relax. Uh, is this a p- contemporary poet, by the way? Yeah. Bad things are going to happen. Your tomatoes will grow a fungus and your cat will get run over. Someone will leave the bag with the ice cream melting in the car and throw your blue cashmere sweater in the dryer. Your husband will sleep with a girl your daughter's age, her breast spilling out of her blouse, or your wife will remember she's a lesbian and leave you for the woman next door. The other cat, the one you never really liked, will contract a disease that requires that you pry open its feverish mouth every four hours for a month. Your parents will die no matter how many vitamins you take, how much Pilates, you'll lose your keys, your hair, and your memory. There's a Buddhist story of a woman, woman. Every time I've heard this story, it's been a man. A woman chased by a tiger. She comes to a cliff, she sees a sturdy vine climbs halfway down, but there's also a tiger below. I heard it otherwise, but it's the same. The two, And two mice, I heard one mouse, one white, one black, scurry out and begin to gnaw at the vine. At this point, she notices a wild strawberry. This I didn't know, is the story. Growing from a crevice She looks up, down, at the mice Then she eats the strawberry So here's your view The breeze, the pulse in your throat Your wallet will be stolen You'll get fat, slip on the bathroom tiles of a foreign hotel And crack your hip You'll be lonely How sweet and tart The red juice is How the tiny seeds crunch between your teeth It's the same It's the same so just for a minute to, i uh, not elevate, but to place this in the sense of history, one of the uh, awesome moments in the in the Rosh Hashanah liturgy is uh, a moment in which the cantor sings uh, a reflection that uh, comes. Uh, it, it actually begins presumably. Uh, In the 12th century, where a person who uh, was dying um, as a martyr uh, wrote this poem uh, that people have chanted. It's a, a poem of saying, you don't know, it's not in your hands. It's really a recognition of the awesomeness of life. I mean, sometimes people end their lives, but that's not their own hands either, even it looks like. It's the circumstances, in fact, that propel that action. But the, the part that I remember from even childhood is a part where um, they where this is, this is a translation that's pretty correct. Uh, in these days will be decided who will pass from the earth and who will be created in this year, who will live and who will die, who will die at His predestined time and who before his time, who by water, who by fire, who by sword, who by beast, who by famine, who by thirst, who by upheaval, who by plague, who by strangling, who by stoning, who will rest and who will wander, who will live in harmony, who will be harried, who will enjoy tranquility, who will suffer, who will be impoverished, who will be enriched, who will be degraded, and who will be exalted." And then it says, but repentance, prayer, and charity avert this severe decree, dying. And I actually changed that in my mind to um, contrition, I like that better than repentance, contrition, generally taking responsibility, feeling bad, reorientation, rededication, uh, what would we call it, wise intention, reinstallation of wise intention, and generosity, which is the opposite of self-absorption, doing for others, thinking about others, putting oneself in the context of a world for others. doesn't cause us not to die physically. We are going to die physically, but that we don't die um, spiritually. I think that they're the the cause of spiritual... Uh, life, for as long as it is, uh, contrition and reorientation, and uh, rededication and generosity. You know, I heard this as a child, and I knew it was awesome, but uh, I wasn't frightened by it. I just, I, uh, I always felt it was a monumental thing because. The the, the the singing of it is monumental, and the community looks genuinely awestruck. These days, by the way, the first 10 years, 10 days of the new year, are called the days of awe. When you reflect on the general frailty of life, you don't know. You say, I'll see you tomorrow. We don't know. Uh, which doesn't mean that we stay home, or doesn't mean that we plead for some sort of divine intercession. I mean, that's fine. Also, it lifts the spirit. I'm, but it just means that's the way it is. What can I do in this day so I am alive in this? I thought about, I had a memory of um, the, uh, the first um, adult well, in the year after I was married, I was 19 years old. I lived in Brooklyn. I lived around the corner from a, um, a, uh, uh, a Jewish hospital where my husband was an intern. And we went to services in the hospital because they had services set up in a big room. And they pushed people in with their hospital beds. Um, So I was a 19-year-old person in a room full of mostly old people in hospital beds, and probably many of them quite sick. And in that group, people singing Who's Dying This Year, Who by This, and Who by That, and Who by This, and Who by That. It was quite awesome to me. Just looking around at all of those people, I think that's really what's true. And the truth is, uh, when I think about it now, it's actually um, what fifty-one years later, uh, more fifty-six years later, fifty-six years later, and and they're still extremely stirring words. I think to myself, for, forever, people have been knowing this is just by a string we are like hanging on that vine. But the tigers above and the tigers below. There's another part of that same prayer at the end of it that says a person's origin is from dust and destiny is back to dust and at the risk of his life he earns his bread. He is likened to a broken shard, a withering glass gra- withering grass, a fading flower, a passing shade. A dissipating cloud, a blowing wind, flying dust, and a fleeting dream. So, the line from the Diamond Sutta is um, Thus shall you speak of all this fleeting world, a bubble rising in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer storm, a falling star, a phantom, and a dream. It's the same. It's the same. You probably can do one. For, I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. <laughs> okay. Think about it, though. This, this There needs to be an impermanence in the Christian liturgy. I know that there is. Uh, so I thought about it a lot the other day, and I thought, I want to be sure to finish. Um How I translate that all in terms of the th- the uh, as I said the three characteristics are things are impermanent, everything's always changing uh, you don't know what's going to happen next. it is uh, a, a, a a profound existential frailty uh, I'm sure I've told you that uh for years, I had on my refrigerator that car, an old cartoon from probably the New Yorker, of a man walking down the New York street. Do you remember that? He's walking down the street and he's looking at his lab results, and he, you know, so the caption says, "Cholesterol is 170. This is this. This is that. This is this. This is that." All the great lab results. What he doesn't know, but what you, the viewer, sees, is that an enormous office safe. Has fallen from a, a a high up floor office, and is coming right down on him. You don't know if your plane crashes, if you're in an automobile accident, if you drown. It doesn't matter what your cholesterol was. It Doesn't matter what your bone density is. You know, it's the same. And and yet we can say. Um, <laughs> I'm laughing because last week I got my bone density results and they weren't so great so I'm back in the gym and I'm doing the weight bearing and I'm taking the calcium more fervently and I'll take care of it but what was interesting to me is I the printout of it came in a in uh in an email and uh I got up, I was feeling great, nothing hurt me, everything perfect. I look at my email and then I see those numbers and I see my mind starting to go to cascade down, you know, like all of a sudden. I said, wait a minute, I feel exactly the same as I did before I read the email. The only thing that's different is I know what this machine says about my bone density at this point. But, you know, I I have a friend. Who's with whom I sometimes go to the opera? Who's ninety-five, and I said to her, "You know, it's nice to talk to. Uh, I like having old women for friends because, especially, old women. Uh, so I, you know, it's interesting. I think of myself as old, but not elderly. Like it makes a difference. But I, but uh, it, it, it's, I'm, you know, you see, it's all, it's all bizarre, because I, I someone sent me. Uh, uh, maybe it was my son. I told him about those results, and he sent me. Oh, he, he called me and he said, "Listen, it's important that you take care of it because you, you, women fall down a lot and they break hips. I know that." And he said, "Especially the elderly past seventy. Think, past, you know, hey, <laughs> <laughs> old, old, not elderly. <laughs> That's ridiculous. You know, one twenty-nine is okay. One thirty-two is not okay. You know, it's ridiculous. Ridiculous." So, uh, but, uh, but you catch the mind doing that and you say, these are the ridiculous habits of my mind. It's got to be this, it's got to be that. So I catch it and I say, wait a minute, you feel the same. You just go back to the gym. You don't have to make a fuss about it. You don't have to drag down your whole day. You don't, because actually, you do have to go to the gym. As long as I'm alive, I don't want to have broken bones if I can avoid it. And I don't want to have pain if I can avoid it. And so it's a good idea to go to the gym. But it's not a good idea to get all fixated on it, because you don't know. You can cross the street. My old friend, I said to her, listen, when you're in a place, I said, I noticed this about myself. When I'm in a notable place, say I go to Washington, D.C., and I'm looking at the Lincoln Memorial at, you know, after dark, all lit up. And then we leave, and I think to myself, I wonder if I'm ever going to see that again. Uh, I say to her, do you think that when you leave a place? She said, no, I never think that. She said, don't think that. That's about." It. She said, when I'm in a lovely place like that, I think, when can I see this again? Or what else do I want to do? And I start making plans to do it. She said, don't think about what you can't do anymore. Well, okay. All right. You know, the gurus come in all kinds of shapes. So I had two more things to share with you. Um, I don't know if I told you that I went to... See here, Barbara Cook. A few weeks ago, do you know Barbara Cook? Barbara Cook is an interpreter of songs. I guess like uh, Barbara Streisand. She's older than Barbara Streisand. And a friend of mine is very devoted to Barbara Cook. She flies wherever in the West that Barbara Cooks in Los Angeles, Barbara Cooks in Las Vegas, and. Uh, My friend Joelle goes wherever it is. Barbara Cook was in San Francisco, so she took me, and we had seats. In the very first row is a cabaret seating, so you're sitting at this tiny table right in the front of Barbara Cook. And packed, it was so hard to, you know, she got tickets long in advance, everything sold out. And uh, Barbara Cook came in, and Barbara Cook is 85 years old. And she's 85. She does not look like the publicity pictures of her, I must (laughs) say. She looks older than the publicity pictures and bigger, but, but her face is beautiful, and she is made up and coiffed and dressed and using a cane to navigate and someone else holding her by the elbow, and she comes in and sits down and says, this is getting old. This is really getting old, meaning about having to use the cane and the support. But I think if you put the accent on the other part, this is getting really old. This is really getting old. If you live long enough, that's what you get. And then she (laughs) sat and sang in the most beautiful voice and was wonderful. And she said, I can't hit the high seas anymore, so I leave them out. I sing other things instead. And she sang... No complaints and no regrets. I still believe in chasing dreams and placing bets. And I've learned that all you give is all you get. So you give it all you've got. I've had my share. I drank my fill. And even though I'm satisfied, I'm hungry still. To see what's down another road beyond a hill, I'll do it all again. I'd do it all again. Maybe she'll do it all again. So here's to life and every joy it brings. Here's to life, to dreamers and their dreams. Funny how the time just flies, how love can go from warm hellos to sad goodbyes and leave you with the memories you've memorized to keep your winters warm. But there's no yes in yesterday and who knows what tomorrow brings or takes away. As long as I'm still in the game, I want to play for laugh, for love, for life, for love. So here is to life and every joy it brings. Here is to life, to dreamers and their dreams. May all your storms be weathered and all that's good get better. Here is to life. Here is to love. Here is to you. May all your storms be weathered and all that's good get better. Here is to life. Here is to love. Here is to you. That's a good blessing. May all your storms be weathered. So like a generic blessing Mm -hmm. for everything. Mm -hmm. You know, when we say in the morning in our prayers, this is happening to this and this is happening to that and this is happening, this is happening. The generic goodwill blessing. May all your storms be weathered. I am more and more convinced that the biggest generosity is the generosity of goodwill and blessing. I am more and more thinking about habituating the mind to goodwill so that it can keep on noticing that there's a world out there to wish well to, which, when I do it, rescues me from my own self-absorbed concerns and connects me to a world of people who have all my stuff one way or another, When we say all the things, I'm thinking about my sister or my brother or my neighbor, we don't all have exactly that same thing, but we have something. And we connect with it because we have something. And our something resonates with whatever something everybody else has. To be together in community and say, you know, here's to life. We've all got it. Many years ago, many years ago, I was teaching um, an introduction to Eastern Religions class at Dominican, really many years ago, like 30 or 40 years ago. And the students were all young. They were mostly Marin County residents. It was when it was Dominican College, not university. They were mostly young Marin County residents between wars, wasn't strife in Marin, there wasn't so much strife in the world. Marin is an affluent community. They were mostly Catholic and so mostly with intact families. And here I come and I'm talking about life as suffering because I'm presenting the teaching of the Buddha. So I've since learned to say life is inevitably challenging because for, it is inevitably challenging. But suffering, it's actually a bad translation to say it is suffering. It is inevitably challenging. And what we do with those challenges is the, is the criteria for whether or not we suffer. And I think the mind, uh, so by the way, one of them asked me one day, I, I must have said the suffering too many times, they said, uh, they, were, they were really concerned, they said, do Buddhists have birthday parties?
1: <laughs> so uh,
0: so I, I really started to see that I really, it's, you have to say this is about life. And dealing with challenge on the ferry, people I heard overheard people saying, "I don't know, they're Buddhists," you know. But well, here we are with the tiaras, you know. People were having to work that out. So, but here we are, and I think that what the Buddha taught was really the the, the really the way to happiness, to contentment. In his time, it was personified by the monk with serene visage, who was cool and uh, spacious in being able to recognize the, the challenges and disappointments and turmoil of the world. But in our time, in this culture, it's us, with all of our different stories, meeting it with a mind of graciousness. And my mind becomes more gracious when I know that my story is not different from anybody else's story. It's like those old um, radio police dramas where they say this actually is a true story. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. When we say all our prayers, it's everybody's story with the names changed. Yeah.
1: Life. I, we were just stunned at how inspiring it
0: was. So where can we see that, Barbara?
1: They all, it, was on, it was on the PBS Channel 22, but it, was, it wasn't just famous people, although Pete Seeger was in there and Granny D, bless her, but there were regular people like what, all of us. What's the name of it, Barbara? It's like Living and Loving After 90 or something like okay. that. I don't remember the name but it had 90 in it, you know, after 90. And all of some of them are getting married for the first
0: time. Like, oh, no. <laughs> that's really correct. That would be, that's really getting married for the first time after 90. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know. We talk about <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs>
0: all right. Uh, I'm not here next Wednesday because it is Yom Kippur. So it's not a day that I can be here, but I'll be here the, uh, uh, the Wednesday after that. And the, the uh, traditional blessing, because that prayer that I read to you about who by this and who by that starts with we are, uh, this is the day that we are inscribed, that God inscribed, we are inscribed in the book of life if we're going to live uh, for another year. So the blessing uh, is may you be inscribed for a good year. So may you all be inscribed for a good year, and I'll see you in two weeks. May our efforts here to sweeten our own minds so that our own hearts are more open, more charitable, more forgiving, and more gracious, change our hearts and minds, change the hearts and minds of our families, our communities, and our world. Shana Tova. (laughs)
1: We turn again, we turn again, we turn the land of my soul, but then it.